prophecy fulfilled and prophecy anticipated. Find Daniel 11. Daniel 11. This is one of the more complicated chapters, okay? We'll try to make sense out of it. There'll be some things in this chapter a bit tedious, perhaps, and I'll try to explain it clearly. I hope, Lord willing, I'll be able to do so. Uh, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Remember, this is a continuation of the prayer from chapter 10. And the angel showing up with the answer to Daniel's prayer that he's been praying. So this is the continuation of that. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who followed her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a greater army and abundant supplies." 
In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. By the, by the way, the king of the south would be in Egypt, king of the north in Syria. We'll get to that later. But in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand for even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of, of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom the royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his, eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, 
and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. We'll stop there and pick up reading more later on. But, whoo, that's a mouthful, is it not? And the last into the room tonight needs to come to the podium and tell us what all this means. So, Ron, you come on up here. No, no, Phyllis came in before you. So you're up. Well, I, I was on time. Everybody else was there. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Thank you, Jeremy. Folks, now we need to remember again from the last time we met that we're now in the final vision. We're now in the final vision that Daniel had, okay? And this vision is going to carry us through to the end of the book. This vision was a vision birthed out of prayer. Now, we saw that last time as we were looking at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is essentially the introduction, a lengthy introduction to chapter 11. And the whole thing was birthed out of prayer. Chapter 10 began with Daniel praying and fasting. He had this burden on his heart. And we talked about that burden last time. Uh, maybe some reasons for his burden. Uh, Remember, it's, it's two years after Cyrus has issued the decree for the Jews to be able to go back home and rebuild their land and rebuild the temple. And only about 49,000, a little more than 49,000, had returned. So maybe he had a burden that more did not go back to rebuild their, their land. Uh, Daniel's not with them. He's old. He's a very aged man by now. And maybe he's sad that he's not able to go back. Uh, and he also may be getting reports about how things back in the homeland rebuilding weren't going that well. And they were being attacked by enemies and so forth. So all of these may explain, uh, be reasons to explain why there's such a burden on Daniel's heart that moves him to prayer. You know, the Bible says we're to cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. Whatever burdens our hearts, we need to let that be translated into prayer. And that's what Daniel is doing here. He's taking this burden before God. There's no better place to take our burdens. Amen? Well, an angel finally shows up with the answer and reveals to Daniel that he would have come sooner, but he's been held up. He's been fighting against a prince of Persia. And we explained last time how what's being communicated there is a demonic power. A demonic power. 
Michael, the archangel, showed up to help this angel, probably Gabriel. And so Gabriel has finally arrived with the answer, and the answer is the vision of what is going to happen to Daniel and Daniel's people. Now, we can see why Satan didn't want this message delivered. He doesn't want our prayers answered. He wants us left in the dark. He doesn't want us to know God's will. He wants us to be frustrated over conditions in the world around us. He certainly didn't want this message revealed. You see, chapter 11, what we need to understand too, chapter 11, the answer to Daniel's prayer is in such detail that you and I have to make a choice. There are many, many, many prophecies in, in chapter 11 of which have already been fulfilled in history. So you either have to believe it is of God or you have to draw some other conclusion. As one commentator reminds us, God is omniscient, so prophecy can be just as detailed as God wants it to be. <coughs> And chapter 11 is very detailed. It's also very hard to outline. And so I have borrowed somebody else's outline. Not their material, but somebody else's outline. So I want to give credit where credit's due. The outline's not mine, but there's only two points in the outline. First of all, we see prophecy fulfilled. Our history. Prophecy fulfilled. Our history history. Now, I read only the first 35 verses because those verses deal with world events that would occur before the birth of Jesus. Okay? For Daniel, it was prophecy, but for us, it's history. And there are four main kings listed here, and we'll get to all of them, so don't worry. Now, what, what we're going to see is also a repeat of chapter 7. We don't find the, the images of the beast here that we saw in Daniel 7, but the content is essentially the same. And again, let me warn you, what I'm about to cover here with all of these names and all these rulers and all the packs that were made, you know, it kind of becomes somewhat tedious. But we're going to see something that we really need to see. We're going to see the futility of all of these leaders. You know, it's kind of like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it is vanity, a chasing after the wind. It's a reminder to the people of God of the uselessness of much of what is done in the world. And over and over again in these verses, we're going to see that, the uselessness of it, because we're going to run into phrases like, His kingdom shall be broken and divided. Another phrase. But she will not hold on to the strength of her arm, but she will be given over. Another one, but he shall return to his land. Still another, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And still another, but he will not remain strong. Over and over again, down through verse 35, we see phrases like that scattered through this text. Again, showing all these, these kings 
who have come and gone. We could call this the parade of kings too. And for all of them, their reign, their rule, and what they were trying to do, it, it was essentially vanity. And nothing came of any of it. Okay? Another commentator reminds us this ought to be a comfort to God's people because as he points out, God builds in judgment to these godly leaders. Uh, ungodly leaders, excuse me. That God isn't going to wait simply until the end, the very end of time, to bring judgment. But even now, God executes judgment against ungodly leaders. And we see some of that here. God's judging these ungodly leaders. He's bringing their reigns to a close, to an end, demonstrating to us they're not in charge of history. God's the one who's in charge of history. Some of these kings think they're in charge. They're not in charge. God's the one in charge. And so with that said, let's get into some of the, some of the tedious aspects of the text here. In verses 2 through 4, we see that it deals with the Persian and the Greek wars. I want you to remember the Babylonian kingdom has now fallen. We've moved out of the head of gold. You with me? We're out of the head of gold, and Daniel is now standing in the kingdom described as the chest and the arms of silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And so beginning in verse 2, God begins telling Daniel things that will happen in the Medo-Persian kingdom. And four more kings would rule Persia after Cyrus. And history tells us who these men were. Cambyses, uh, uh, Smyrtis, I hope I say some of these right, Darius, Histophis and Xerxes, better known in the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. You remember, he's the one that ended up marrying Esther. Okay? So those four kings come after Cyrus. Now, Persia reached her zenith under Xerxes, just as verse 2 says says, Now I show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. That would be Xerxes. And then look at verses 3 and 4 again. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen... His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Xerxes, the Persian king, led his people into battle against the Greeks. And even though they had a larger fighting force than the Greeks had, Nonetheless, Xerxes and the Persians lost. And in verses 3 to 4, we see Alexander the Great being spoken of. 
Uh, after his death, his wife and his son were murdered, and so there were no heirs to take his throne. And so what happened? Alexander's four generals fought over who would get his empire. It was divided up among these four. Now, from chapter 7, we've already covered this. Remember, there was Ptolemy who took Egypt, which is to the south of Israel. Seleucus took Syria, which is to the north of Israel. Cassander took Greece to the west. And Lysimachus took Asia Minor. Now, we don't hear much about Cassander and Lysimachus. The next few verses in chapter 11 here are going to be consumed with simply talking about Ptolemy and Seleucus. Ptolemy, the king from the south, Seleucus, the king from the north. So it's almost like you can just kind of forget in your mind, again, of, of the four generals, you can forget two of them in your mind pretty much in this chapter, Cassander and uh, Lysimachus, and it's going to concentrate uh, on Ptolemy and Seleucus. Well, in verses 5 to 20, uh, we see that what's being talked about here is all that's going to happen between the kings of the north and the south, which again is Egypt and Syria. For almost 300 years, the next 300 years, these two kingdoms would constantly fight it out with one another and poor Israel was caught right in the middle. Israel didn't have a dog in the fight. But just like had been predicted, she would be trodden underfoot by Gentiles. Why? Because of course Israel, right in between Syria and Egypt. And they're battling it out for 300 years. So Israel, right in the middle with major highways passing through, you know, Israel's kind of caught in the middle. Uh, the whole thing played out. These battles between the north and the south, between Syria and Egypt, these battles played out kind of like a soap opera. You, you begin reading there in verse 6, after some years, after some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Now, history tells us that, that this Egyptian and Syrian alliance took place in 250 B.C. Ptolemy II offered to give his daughter, Bernice, to the grandson of Seleucus, who was Antiochus II. Girls were sometimes offered up in marriages like this to another king. You know, one king would make an alliance, a covenant, or a treaty with another king, another nation. And they'd kind of trade daughters off. And one king would give the other king a daughter of his in marriage 
to kind of seal the deal. That's what's going on here. Ptolemy II offers Bernice to the grandson of Seleucus. The only thing is, though, her daddy, Ptolemy II, demanded that Antiochus first divorce his second wife, Laodicea, which he did. Hey, easy come, easy go, right? Well, that made Laodicea very angry and bitter that she's been divorced so her husband can take another wife because of a treaty. And what's the old saying? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So after two years of marriage, Bernice's daddy, Ptolemy II, died back in Egypt. So Antiochus quickly remarried Laodicea and declared Bernice to be nothing more than a concubine. But Laodicea was carrying a grudge toward her husband because he had dumped her in the first place for the, for the younger Bernice. So she poisoned him. And then she also killed Bernice and Bernice's child by Antiochus. And she killed all of Bernice's attendants. And then she appointed her son, Seleucus II, to become king of Syria. All that's the drama being talked about here in verses 6 and 7. Now, while this is going on, Seleucus II is hiding out in Asia Minor. And then we see in verse 8, uh, Ptolemy III comes in and loots Syria. And the soap opera continued. Sixty years later, the king of Syria, Antiochus III, who was also known as Antiochus the Great, he tried the same thing. In 193 BC, he gave his daughter Cleopatra. Now, not the Cleopatra you're thinking of. Okay? This is another one. But he gave his daughter Cleopatra to the Egyptian king, Ptolemy V. This was the first Egyptian queen named Cleopatra, the famous one who consorted with Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar was a descendant. Uh, she was Cleopatra VII. But when the first Cleopatra here got to Egypt, instead of influencing her husband, towards Syria like she was supposed to do. She fell in love with Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy V of Egypt. And she became a supporter of Egypt instead of her country. And you look at verse 17. Daniel says about all this, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Again, why? Because she ended up going with Ptolemy V and supporting the Egyptians. Now, Antiochus the Great then invaded Greece. Don't worry, you're not going to be tested on all this, okay? <laughs> Antiochus the Great invaded Greece, but in 188 BC, 
He was completely driven out of that part of the world by Rome. He turned back to his own land. He tried to plunder his own people. And verse 19 talks about how they murdered him. His own people murdered him. And then his older son, Seleucus IV, Philopater, then ruled, but he was murdered by his own prime minister. And verse 20 talks about that. Well, now we come down to verses 21 and following down through verse 35 where we meet an enemy that we have been introduced to earlier in the book of Daniel. Verse 21 says, uh, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down uh, slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. This guy's name in verse 21 is who? Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was the youngest son of Antiochus the Great. Okay? And you'll remember the Jews nicknamed Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Instead of saying Epiphanes, they named him Epimenes. Madman. He wanted to be called Antiochus the Most High, and they would chant out instead Antiochus the Madman which, of course, made him even madder. He practiced deceit, kind of pretended to be uh, a Robin Hood. In 170, he defeated the Egyptian king, Ptolemy uh, Philemator. Uh, Ptolemy lost this battle because he was betrayed by some of his friends who sat at his own table. Verse 26. Antiochus then took Ptolemy Philometer back to Syria with him. Antiochus was actually his uncle. He pretended to befriend him, but as verse 27 says, neither of them trusted the other, and they constantly spoke lies to one another. Now, in verses 28 to 30, it says, He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will and return to his own land. 
at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships from Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Antiochus had hoped to go back and capture Egypt. But he was stopped in his tracks by the Romans. The Egyptians appealed to Rome for help. So the Roman commander, uh, Populus, arrived in Alexander by ship. And he showed Antiochus a letter from a Roman senate commanding him to return back home to Syria. Well, humiliated and angry, Antiochus turned and left with his army, as these verses describe, but on the way back, he took out his rage against the Jews. Verses 30 to 32 is talking about this. In fact, he killed 80,000 Jews. He set up an idol of Zeus in the temple, had a pig killed on the altar and blood sprinkled uh, in the temple. This was the abomination that causes desolation. Now, in verse 32, we read of the great exploits of the Jews. It says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, folks, this will be the story that is recorded in what book? Does anybody know? First Maccabees, exactly. It's a fascinating story of courage of the Jewish people under Judas uh, Maccabeus as they reclaimed their land. They stood up to Antiochus and they reclaimed not only the land, but they cleansed the temple. First Maccabees talks about that. And again, that's what Jews celebrate every year near Christmas, Hanukkah, when the temple was cleansed and reconsecrated. So verse 32 is talking about these Jews. Antiochus is on his way back to Syria from Egypt. The Romans told him, get back home where you belong. He's, he's mad, he's pouting, he goes through Israel, he turns on the Jews, kills all these people, and, and does all these horrible things, and the godly remnant who wouldn't go along with the changes he wanted to make in their land too, they rose up against him under Judas Maccabeus and his brother and, and their father. Now, with the, with the close of verse 35, we see that Fulfilled prophecy now comes to a close. Okay? The first point was what? Prophecy. What I tell you? Prophecy fulfilled. Our history. Okay? That goes down through verse 35. The second thing I want you to see, major point, prophecy predicted. Our future. Beginning in verse 36. Let's read verse 36. 
And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Now, let me say something to you here, okay? You would not be alone. You would not be alone if you think verse 36 and following continues to describe Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Virtually the world of critical scholarship believes verse 36 and following is just continuing to talk more about Antiochus. But even those scholars have to admit something. They have to admit they're faced with a problem. Because the first 35 verses, historians can match things up perfectly with history. But in verses 36 and following, those verses don't match up with Antiochus Epiphanes and what he continued to do. There are things said in verses 36 to 39 that I just read that are not true of Antiochus' reign. So even critics who feel like these verses continue to describe him kind of scratch their heads because things don't fit. Jerome, Calvin, Theodoret, Luther, many others point out that another king has to be in view here. Jerome wrote of the Jews living in his time. He said, and I quote, the Jews believe that this passage makes reference to the Antichrist. You see, verse 35 seems to indicate that we are done with Antiochus, we're moving on to somebody else because there's a catchphrase in verse 35 that previously when we see this catchphrase, the story is about to move on to someone else. And that catchphrase is, until the time of the end. You see that in verse 35? That that marks a transition that, okay, what's just been being described now is done, and now verse 36, we're going to pick up talking about somebody else. This is something in the, in the Bible that scholars call telescoping. Telescoping. For instance, an Old Testament prophet may be talking about the first coming of Christ, and suddenly, without warning, what he starts saying refers not to the first coming of Christ, 
but to the second coming of Christ. Kind of like driving in the mountains. Have you ever been driving in the mountains and you're coming up, there's two peaks in the distance and they're just, they're just right there together. You tracking with me? They're right there together. You're driving up to them. But when you get up to that first mountain peak, that second one that appeared to be right there, it may be another 30, 45 minutes in the distance. When you were way back, it looked like they were together. But when you got up to the first one, they're separated by miles and miles and miles. Telescoping. And that's how prophecy can be in the Bible. It records two things. And, and later it becomes clear that these two things are not together in time, but they're separated by hundreds or even thousands of years. And that's what a lot of scholars believe about the transition that begins here with verse 36, that we are now moving from the history of Antiochus Epiphanes and now suddenly we're reading about a ruler who's going to be at the end of time, future even for us today, that we refer to as the Antichrist. Now, I tend to agree with those scholars who say we're not reading about a continuation of Antiochus. We're now talking about the Antichrist. I think they're right. And he describes, first of all, his time there in verse 36. He's going to rule during a time of wrath. He's going to distinguish himself during this time. There's going to be an intense time of tribulation, much like what we see every day, only much worse. And then in verses 36 to 37, we see his, I mean 36 to 39, excuse me, we see his temperament. He'll be self-willed. He will exalt himself above all. He'll magnify himself and malign God. He'll speak blasphemies against God and he will prosper for a while. He'll not regard the gods of his fathers. So he'll be irreligious again because he exalts himself. Now based on what we've seen of the Antichrist already in Daniel, it, it seems kind of clear that he's probably a Gentile. He's the little horn of Daniel 7 and the beast that comes out of the sea of Revelation 13. And the beast coming out of the sea, that is out of the sea of humanity and sea of nations. Probably a Gentile. It says he'll have no desire uh, let me, let me read it exactly how it says it here. Let me go back and read it. Uh, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. Other translations will say the one desired of women or, or some other translations that, that produces several interpretations. Some interpret this as he's not going to have the normal desire for women. In other words, 
it's telling us the Antichrist is going to be homosexual. That's one interpretation. Others say, no, what's being said is the things normally characteristic of women, gentleness, and mercy, he's not going to have any of that. He's going to be a brute beast. Or still a third interpretation of what this phrase means, the desire of women. The Hebrew women desire to be what? The mother of the Messiah. So they think it's saying that he'll have no desire for anything that has to do with Christ. Which of those? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. He'll, he'll honor the God of fortresses. He'll be probably a military genius. He'll be interested in war and power. And then from verses 40 down through 44 indicate that there's going to be uh, wars and a violent end to history as we know it. This evil one is going to conquer nations, but in verse 45 it says he'll pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. He's going to be destroyed. Thankfully, he's going to be destroyed. He'll come to an end. Now, if we were to read on at this point into chapter 12, we'd see a contrast being set. And we really do need to see a contrast being set. While, while this evil one is doing all of his evil, and finally he himself is coming to an end and being swept away. Yet those written in God's book of life shall be raised to life. That contrast is being set up in the text. And so we're intended to see probably that while there is tribulation ahead for the saints of God, we're to be encouraged. God has better things planned for us. We're not to suppose that this world is ever going to be a nice place. We live in a fallen world where men are getting more and more evil and things that are good now are being called evil and things that are evil are being called good and we have no reason to suspect that anything other than things getting worse are what's going to happen. Things are going to get worse. The world is a nasty place. Nation is going to rise against nation, leader against leader, all kinds of wars and rumors of wars, and then all of it's going to come to an end. Even this last leader, the Antichrist, who thinks he's God. No, he ain't God. He's going to come to an end. He's going to have to meet the real God. And this world and all of its wickedness is going to come to pass. But the saints are going to be raised because we're in God's book of life. And so even now, while we're going through the tribulation that's only going to get worse and worse and worse while we're going through this, where are we to keep our eyes? We're to keep our eyes on God. Because where's our hope? It's in God. 
Our hope is not to be in this world. And boy, when we look around and see what's going on, we see that the world is not to be our trust. We can't trust things in the world. Our trust is to be in God. And even though we'll have to experience this if we're alive, you might even have to, you might have to offer your life for your faith. But nonetheless, you'll keep your eyes on the Lord because in Him, you're going to be raised to life. We're to be like Abraham who was looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. And so we're not a people without hope. Daniel is being told in this vision here that it's going to be rough for his people. They're back in the land. They're able to rebuild with great difficulty. Things are going to get worse. And then we're carried to the very end where things continue to get worse for God's sakes. But this world is not our hope. So what are some lessons that ought to be our response Lesson number one, don't get discouraged when you hear about the end of times. Prophecy about the end should increase our confidence in God. History is His story. You know, Jesus told His disciples, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Our redemption is drawing near. It's nearer tonight than it was last time. A second lesson. This means that we ought to follow the admonition given to us in Hebrews 10.25. That we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but we're to stir one another up. We're to provoke one another to love and good deeds and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day of the Lord approaching. We're getting closer. So what should the saints of God be doing? Meeting together, studying Scripture, encouraging one another, praying, being about the Lord's business. Because He's going to draw it to a close in His time. And His time is closer tonight than it was yesterday. So don't grow weary. A third lesson, our confidence in God's Word should be strengthened. You look back for these first 35 verses and you see all of the detail that was given to Daniel in the 6th century B.C. that would have been prophecy for Daniel. Again, it's history for us today because all, all that by the 2nd century was said and done. But when you see how intricate this prophecy is, how detailed, and things happened exactly like the angel told Daniel they were going to happen, it ought to build our confidence. If, if prophecies in the past have been fulfilled so exacting, it ought to give us confidence that anything yet to be fulfilled is going to be fulfilled exactly as God has told us it's going to be. We serve a God who cannot lie. 
And he's going to wrap things up exactly as he has said. We can count on his word. We can stand on his word. His word is truth. And so our confidence in Scripture should be strengthened when we read about prophecies like this that have already been fulfilled. It gives us confidence that anything future is going to be fulfilled too. That's the kind of God we serve. He keeps His Word. Okay, I told you this was a challenging chapter. And it is. Any comments? About questions. Questions? Directed to Ron. The last one in. Ron's going to answer your questions. I'm not sure I can answer them. You would ask those that scholars that believe the last of 11 has already taken place. The last of what? Chapter 11. Uh, the last verses of chapter 11 that say that that describes more than the opportunity, right? Right. What yes. did they do with the first three verses of 12? Did they believe that also taken place? And that at that time it talks about. No. No, they they were there. It, it's really hard to grasp all of that just reading the text sure. a few times. Oh yeah. Uh, if if you got some. You know, we came through that Sunday night series, How to Study the Bible. You know, some really good study Bible, like ESV Study Bible, the Zondervan Theological Study Bible. Get several good study Bibles. Study the notes. But you, you're probably going to have to break down, too, and buy some good commentaries on these. And if you're curious to do that, I can recommend some to you. Okay? But you're gonna you're gonna have to dig in because just on the surface reading, you're not gonna get all this. Because you know, scholars will go into all of the different. Egyptian leaders, Assyrian leaders, those, those generals of Alexander, and then the ones who followed those generals and their dates and in history, what we know about their, their rule, that fits in perfectly with what these verses are saying. So you're going you're gonna to have to turn to uh, commentaries to get information like that. Well, let me ask this question. Do you think God's purpose in having this in his book right. is strictly from a historical perspective? Uh, and the processes of things that are happening almost in chronological order? Right. That was the question. Okay. I, I think probably the purpose for Daniel the overriding purpose for him. Because remember, more than 49,000 of them have gone back to rebuild. Things aren't going well for them. 
And there's prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and so forth that are going to have to stir up the people to finish what God led them back there to do. But they've got enemies back there. It's tough times. They were probably thinking they're going to get back to their homeland. It's going to be kind of easy. And Daniel's being told, Daniel, you and your people need to buckle up. It, it's, it's not going to be easy. And guess what, Daniel? Even throughout history for the saints of God, life is not going to get easy. But God is still in charge. And in the end, He's going to bring all these evil rulers to an end. And He's going to establish His kingdom. Remember back in chapter 2? that fifth kingdom that comes in and smashes all others, God's kingdom that will never come to an end. Daniel, hang in there. Your people need to hang in there. Keep your eyes on God. He's going to end all these evil rulers and kingdoms. He's going to establish His kingdom. And His people are going to be with Him for all eternity. So just hang on, Daniel. Be faithful and endure to the end. I think that's really the overriding message that Daniel's intended to take away. Well, the Jews were not united in that process either. Right. Which made it even more difficult. Sure. Sure. And so Daniel is being called to faithfulness and be a voice for faithfulness. ESV. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, God says in these words, I don't remember where it is, I think it's Proverbs, that uh, it's, it, the pleasure of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to search them out. Right. This book is so full of treasures. Even that chapter every verse will amaze you sure. when you read the detail of it. I don't think God's going to give us a history test. I pray not. But every, when you see, that's what he said. He's, God says in three lines, a hundred years worth of history. Sure. And it is to the T. Yep. So yep. maybe it's there just to continue to amaze us as to how amazing he is. Sure. Absolutely. He's refining us in this world of tribulation. And you know, Peter talks about that very thing in 1 Peter. We're like gold. How gold is refined in the fire. The impurities went to the top because of the heat. And poured off. And more trials and more draws poured off. And you you finally end up with pure gold. Peter says that's how trials are in the believer's life. It refines us and gets rid of the impurities and weaknesses and sin. It gets us to be a more pure and holy people. Be faithful. Absolutely. Absolutely.